John chapter 20 is really the story of the first Easter when uh, Mary Magdalene initially and the other Marys and the the women who loved Jesus came and they found the the stone was rolled away and they have an encounter with Jesus. And as we read, Mary's given the, the commission to go and tell the brethren. And then the disciples run to the tomb, and they, they find the evidence that his body is not there. And they themselves have an encounter with the risen Lord. And as, as we read, they were in an upper room. They were, they were kind of still trying to process what had happened to uh, the world that they were kind of expecting Christ to come and redeem. And yet, it's a total change of plans in their mind. And there were 10 disciples at this point because Judas had betrayed Christ and Thomas was not there for whatever reason. And I really want to pick up the story to begin with in what happened to Thomas because it says that he was not there initially and then about a week later he comes and says, I don't believe it. I actually do not believe that this happened, Uh, which is a reminder, no one was expecting Christ to rise. We all celebrate Easter morning and think about the sunrise, and many of you went to the cross and said, it's Easter. We're so excited that Christ rose. Well, that's not an Easter tradition. The tradition is skepticism and doubt. And Thomas gives us a picture of that tradition because he says to the disciples, I haven't seen him unless I do not only see him, but feel him and see the wounds and the, the physical marks of his crucifixion. I won't believe. And that's where the story picks up. Jesus meets him in his skepticism. And I hope that Jesus will meet some of you in your skepticism this morning. He says to Thomas in verse 27, uh, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. And he put it in his side. He said, don't be unbelieving but believing, which is the message for us this morning. For those of us who already believe, don't be unbelieving. Believe once again. More faith more belief in what we sang today, that Christ has overcome. The grave has been robbed by our God, and he has set forth a path for us to follow in the resurrection life. Believe it. But then he also says something very interesting. I think for the purposes of the morning, it maybe is appropriate for us to consider what Jesus goes on to say to Thomas in verse 29. He says, because you've seen me, you believed which is how we typically think logical uh, coming to belief works. Seeing is believing, which is true in a sense. But Jesus takes it a step further and says, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So I like this passage of scripture, the promise of blessing for those of us who don't get to see in the context of the first Easter. That would be us. That would be all of the believers of the last 2,000 years who have allowed the truth of the resurrection to endure to this day. It says there's a blessing for us today, even though we will not have an encounter with the physical Lord. And I don't think we're supposed to because he says that we are blessed for not seeing. It's okay that we don't have an encounter. Uh, He said to Mary, don't cling to me. I haven't ascended. The plan is for us to not have a physical encounter with Christ this morning. So the question of the hour is, what is the blessing for those of us who want to believe and, and, and receive this promise as the gospel of John, the writer, will go on to say, I'm writing this account to you. I'm passing this account to you, my physical witness of Christ, so that in believing in Christ Jesus and the Son of God, that believing you may have life in his name. So for many of us, we're just cashing in that promise this morning. We're just here celebrating the fact that God opened your eyes to the reality of Christ as the visible image of the invisible God and that he has 
power, exceedingly great power, to overcome death itself. How much more can he overcome? And this morning we come and we sing these praises with tears in our eyes. If you're like me, I'm crying, and I'm looking out at the hands lifted to the heavens. And we're just cashing in the promise that says, we've got life in his name. This is the life that we crave. What we did this morning, when I look around and I hear the language of Farsi, and Spanish, and Arabic, and then I hear the hymns and the worship songs that we sing, I'm thinking, this is life. This, is, this has got to be a preview to what awaits us in the fullness of life to come. And we cash it in. And then there's other of you who are thinking, okay, tell me about the life in his name. I, I'm like Thomas. I'd like to see this thing. I came here to kind of witness what this would be. Well, we're going to try to find an answer for all of us, and I think this is a crucial time, not only for the the church and believing in God, but just for the world. How do you find life in this world? This might be the most important Easter message I've had the privilege to preach in my five years of preaching Easter messages, because it, it doesn't take a lot of explaining to give you the context of the world right now. We live in a time that can best be described in the metaphor of light and dark, and it seems as though darkness is expanding, doesn't it? Division, confusion, tension, neighbor against neighbor, sister against brother, mother against child, father against son. Welcome to 2021. How do we have life in the name of Christ? To answer this question, I actually want to look at kind of the prequel to the cross. So if you have a Bible, we're in John The Gospel of John, we're going to stay there, but to get to John chapter 20, you have to go through John chapter 12. That's how numbers work. And in John chapter 12, Jesus gives a very similar teaching about having a blessed faith in God without actually seeing. In John chapter 12, this is the the beginning of the Holy Week. And the, the week that we kicked off last Sunday with Palm Sunday, Jesus has ridden into the, uh, the city of Jerusalem in Israel. Palm Sunday, they want to anoint him king. And they're there uh, to celebrate the feast of the Passover, which is now, we know, a symbol of what was to come in the resurrection of Christ. He fulfilling the Passover lamb. This lamb that they remember is how they got out of slavery in Egypt. They took this spotless lamb and they killed it and put the blood over the threshold. And they're there to celebrate that feast. And in their celebration, it says in verse 20, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast. Now, Greeks are, in biblical times, people who would be considered outside the family of God. And again, I look to this passage of Scripture, I can't help but think of this morning, because we got some Greeks in the audience this morning, don't we? We got some people who are here to check it out, to examine. And if you don't believe me, how many of you were here were last week, and you just look around, uh, we didn't have this many people here. There are more people here this week than there were last week. So welcome to you, those who are coming to check this out. And this is a really interesting moment because this is kind of what we tend to think of as a really cool momentous moment or a moment where momentum's happening. Jesus has come into the city. They've praised him as future king. And now non-believers want to check him out. They want to worship. They want to see him. And some of the disciples come to Jesus. And what happens? It says Philip and Andrew, they come and they tell Jesus that Greeks want to see him. And Jesus gives them a story about a seed. He says, the hour has come, in verse 23, that the Son of Man should be glorified. This is pointing him to this moment that he came to earth to accomplish, where he would go to the cross, he would die to take away the sin of the world, and then he would overcome death in resurrection, the day that we celebrate today. 
He says, most assuredly, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So slow down with me for a second and think about what Jesus has just done. To kind of break down what we would typically do if we're trying to start a movement or business or grow a church, you've got people who want to come. Uh, you've got people who want to join in. And Jesus is like, just tell them that uh, a grain of wheat has to die and then it will uh, bear fruit. He doesn't be like, well, tell them where we are. Here's the flyer. Tell them to come to the Easter service. Put a door hanger on their door and then they can come in. And here's a reminder of the methodology of Jesus right now. Uh, whenever Jesus has crowds, which he has all the times, by the way. Throughout the Gospels, as you read the life of Jesus, he performed miracles. He taught with wisdom that people had never heard before. And people were drawn to him for healing and teaching. And they, they wanted to see him. And typically, when Jesus had a crowd this size, not to burst your bubble, but he was always trying to get the crowd smaller. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, we see Jesus with a huge crowd. It's giant. They're pushing him against the, the, uh, the sea. He can't even, he can't even uh, engage with them on land because it's so big. And he gives them a parable, a, a series of parables, and he says, anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. Doesn't explain it. He's like, good luck uh, understanding and deciphering what I meant. If you really want to know me, you'll figure it out. See you later. Can you imagine if we did that on Easter morning? It's like, oh, this crowd is awesome. This is like church growth methodology. We want you to come back next week. And I was like, listen, if you have ears to hear, let you hear. Everyone else, they'll probably never see you again. See ya. That's the end of the sermon. Jesus does the same thing. They, they want to see him. And some of you want to see Christ. You've come here with your own version of some disciples that you knew. A neighbor or a friend or a coworker, And you're like, yeah, you go to church. Where do you go? You came and you checked it out. And now you're here. And Jesus wants to give you something that doesn't allow you to actually see him. So we get back to the question, how do you see him without seeing him? This is a principle that you'll find throughout scripture, it mostly summed up in a phrase you may have heard, we walk not by sight, but by faith. There's something that we're supposed to have in our souls that's not part of the physical image of seeking God. Uh, there's another passage of scripture that will describe this that I really like for the context of kind of a mixed audience like we have this morning. Uh, we're, we're here to worship and we're here to examine, right? And when that happens, we have to remember what actually matters about these gatherings. What matters? Is it, does it matter how easy it was to park? Does it matter how great the music was? Does it matter what you think of this message? Throughout church history, there's always a reminder that most things don't matter, there's just a couple that do. And if you get these three things that we actually will find in Jesus' teaching about resurrection, you will have life in his name. Here's the teaching that comes to us in 1 Corinthians 13 about how we see. It says this, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Now, in other words, on this side of eternity, when we live in our temporal bodies with a temporal timeline to our lives and all of us awaiting death, now we see dimly through a mirror. Uh, imagine the picture if we're, we're trying to, to make out an image of something. That 1 Corinthians 13 says, it's like we all have mirrors and there's not a lot of light and we can barely see it. That's a picture of how well we can know God. And when this is written, it's written to a church that is arguing about a bunch of church stuff. So if you're an outsider to church right now and you're thinking, I don't typically like to go to church because the politics or the, the arguing or, man, those guys are just as weird as everyone else. You're right. 
That's correct. It's been that way since the very beginning, and church is never going to be heaven on earth. Our very best hope as a church is we would find the primary functions that we can actually tap into to know God, and here's they are. Now we see in a mirror dimly lit. But then, meaning when we enter into eternity, which all of us will do, whether you like it or not, the Bible says there, we're all appointed an hour. As Jesus says, this is my hour to be glorified. Well, the Bible says we've all been appointed once to die, and then comes judgment. What did you do with your temporal life that will indicate what will happen to your eternal life? Will you be going towards God or away from God? It says when we get to then, eternal, we're going to know him just like he knows us. Imagine the promise. The God of the universe who created you and knew you in your mother's womb, knows the number of hairs on your head, knows the depths of your thoughts and the bottom of your heart. We're going to know that God just like he knows us, but not now. Right now, we have a few things that God will give us to navigate this life because we can't see everything. What are these three things? It says this, but now, on this side of eternity, now abide these three things, faith, hope, and love. These three, and the greatest of these is love. These are the three things that will never fade away from your pursuit for life in the name of Christ. These are the things that if you find faith in Christ, hope in Christ, and life in Christ, you have life in his name. And these three things, by the way, are given to you by God like hunger to your soul. The psalmist says, like the deer pants for water, my soul longs for God. And it longs for him in ways that will tap into your faith and your hope and your love. And the reason I say this is such an important Easter message this year is because faith, hope, and love are the medicine that this dying world will be revived by. But where do they come from? Where do you get faith? Is as, you, as you survey the world that we live in, and we've laid out the context of the darkness expanding, and you come here to examine Christ, examine your own world. What do you put your faith in? Government? Medicine? Academia? School? What gives you hope that tomorrow could be better than yesterday? And where is the fountain of love that all of us crave, but none of us seem to have within ourselves? Because it doesn't take long to worship his name and then to get so annoyed when you're leaving the parking lot. The parking I've, I've heard is horrible today, so I apologize. And leaving's going to be hard. Where do you get love to be gracious and kind and long-suffering even minutes after you celebrate a resurrection? The foundation of these three things is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we find that in the way that Jesus says, you'll be blessed when you don't see me but you'll see me with faith, hope, and love. And here's how we see it in the metaphor that God gives us through his creation. And Jesus says, you want to understand how glory works? Check this out, verse 23. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified, that the Son of Man will finally be high and lifted up and made as famous as is worthy to the creator of the universe. And how does it come? So we start first with faith. How does it come? Most, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. So this is just botany 101. If I have seeds in my hand and I hold them, I can have these seeds in my hand by next year this time, and they're just sitting here. They're just alone in my hand. But when you bury them, when they, as Jesus say, die, buried in the ground, something will happen to produce life and more life in those seeds. 
And this is a statement that will be made not just about botany, but about the design that God has made for us to understand salvation in his name. Because it then goes on to say, just like the seed, he who loves his life will lose it. The seed remains alone unless it's buried. You love your life. You love all of the things that create your identity for the life that you have now. It will be lost. You cannot hold it. You can't stay in high school forever. You can't stay young forever. You can't stay gifted and talented as an athlete forever. The harder you hold, the more you lose. But, he says, if you hate your life or if you give your life away, in other teachings, he says, it is then that you will find it. And this is a statement of faith that must be understood in spiritual terms. Because don't we wish that this wasn't the path of salvation? That we didn't have to give our life away? You could just come into church and I'd be like, see you on Christmas. Good job. Good, enjoy the, the next six months of your life. I will give you a pastor's pass that you came to church. I hope your job and your career and your identity in this world get built up the way that you want them to. And hopefully on Christmas, you'll get another religious pass. That's not how salvation works. Salvation works like nature. And here's what you have to put faith in this morning. Two things. One, faith in the reality that God has displayed this process through his son conquering the grave. And this is a faith that is full of historical context and full of God saying, for the logical engineer minds among us who want to see the proof in their skepticism, here it is. Study the history. How in the world did this Jewish carpenter set into motion a revolution to this world that still is here 2,000 years later and we're praising his name? How has so much prophecy been fulfilled in this man? But that is not the only statement of faith that you must make. You also have to make a very, very real faith move in your life, and it is this. Glory comes after death. Death precedes honor. You don't get it along the way. Jesus says, my hour of glory has come, so now it's time for me to die. Jesus will turn glory on its head because it, it's different than how we think about it. it. It was different in his day, too. Because the people wanted Jesus' glory to be very transactional to his miracles or his teaching or even the coming king that they wanted him to be. And it says earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, that they tried to make him king by force, by placing a crown on his head. And it says that Jesus withdrew himself into the mountains because that is not the glory that is offered by the design of God for our souls. And we think glory comes through crowns. Glory must come for, from hard work, educate yourself, and enrich yourself, improve yourself, and climb the ladder to glory. And Jesus says, put your faith in this, glory comes after death. There's all sorts of ways that you can experience this in your life apart from a, a preacher calling you to a life filled in the spirit of Christ. I was actually doing a wedding yesterday, and uh, I was with the, the groom about five minutes before. It was just he and I awaiting for our cue to walk to the altar where he would wait for his bride-to-be to walk down the aisle, a beautiful moment in the wedding. Uh, and in that five minutes, his nerves kind of started talking, right? He's like, oh, boy. And my nerves started listening. I was like, yeah, keep talking. This is great for both of us. <laughs> and uh, he said, you know, it kind of dawned on me that um, last night was the last night I'd ever get to have my bed to myself. 
And he's like, that's a good thing. I mean, I'm excited about it. But what was happening is he realized that everything he knew about his life before marriage was about to die. He will no longer be single. He'll no longer be a bachelor. He'll no longer have the house to himself, the bed to himself, the plans to himself. Because when you enter into anything that requires you to love anything, it also requires you to die. And so I, I thought of that, and I'm like, man, thank you, because I'm preparing an Easter sermon, and you just nailed it. You are now dying. And he's like, what? I'm like, it's going to be fine. <laughs> so here's what he repeated after me. I said, do you promise to forsake all others and keep yourself to your wife and to her only? We hear it, we say it, we think about it, we've exchanged the vows to each other for those of us who are married, but forsake all others. In other words, do you promise to die to every other person you possibly could have married? I do. That's how marriage works. And that's how you get the glory of the wedding and then the marriage. And that's how anything that requires you to experience love will work. I'm also not only a husband, so I've experienced dying to myself in that regard. I'm also a father. And fathers, mothers among us, you know that having children is glorious. But it requires you to die all the time. I can't tell you the last time that I was selfishly sleeping in without someone jumping on my face. I have died to a, a 10 o'clock wake up. It's not possible. And I've died to all sorts of things so that I can be a father who represents the design of fatherhood to love till the end, unconditionally, and to love with no greater love than to die. And so you're thinking of these things in your own life. Because if anything from this last year, 2020 taught you and me and the church and people that live in countries across the world and all sorts of ways that death is inevitable in more ways than just a physical death. There are things that you are forced to let go of. And what Jesus says is that is when, when you let go of things for my sake, that is actually when you will begin to find them. And for those of you who don't actually consider yourself religious or consider yourself a church-going person or this is something that you do because you're religious because you only do it twice a year and you think that's enough, there is a spiritual truth that should set you free this morning in the gospel good news message that faith in believing in Christ the path of glory is the cross and then the resurrection is that you do not have to prove yourself to earn the love of God. All you have to do is be willing to follow Christ to death. And we get that example in one of the disciples who came to Christ later. His name was Paul. He wrote a letter to one of the churches as he was just ministering to them and preaching the good news to them in their form, which was letter. And he gives the story of his own life that to know Christ was worth giving anything over. To experience life in his name means everything else could die and he would have greater life than anything this world could ever give you. And he wrote to them in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, the things that were gained to me, these I've counted a loss for Christ. Anything I've gained, I'll lose. And what were these things? He says, I count all these things a loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. When I read the metaphor of a seed, you, 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 it's, it's safe to keep it in the area of botany 101, isn't it? But Paul will go on to say that so it is with our lives. Our bodies are like seeds that must go into the ground to experience glory. 
And your life is a seed of what you will be with the plans of God in this life and the life to come. And for those of you who know that, you know the day of salvation opened up to a new joy and a new hope because God has made you something greater than what you expected. And this is what Paul says, I suffer the loss and I count them all as trash to gain Christ and to be found in him, not having my own righteousness. I don't present my religious good works to God. I don't present my church attendance and my Easter celebration to God. I don't present my understanding of theology to God or the ways that I preach or do missions or do worship songs or tell my neighbors all of these things come with glory. But to get to the glory, what Paul says is I consider everything worthy to lose for the excellent knowledge of Christ. Why? Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And that is what we come to experience this morning. Not simply the proof of the resurrection. Not simply the historical context of the resurrection. Not simply you believe in the resurrection and you will have resurrection, but you can experience the power of a seed that goes into the ground and something coming up that is better than you could have ever imagined. And so now we come to the second aspect of these vital signs of life in his name. You have faith in the design of God that glory comes after death, that joy comes after suffering and sacrifice. And then we have hope that in between, God is not done with the story. Because if you've ever studied botany or if you've ever planted anything, you know that just burying something and then watering it and, and putting sunlight on it does not mean that it instantly grows. And it is true also of this first Easter that we examine through the Gospel of John. If you think about the, the Easter Holy Week and these days that are represented from last Sunday to Palm Sunday when Christ entered in, the triumphal entry, you have Thursday where people often remember Christ washing the feet of the disciples and breaking bread representing the first communion. You have Good Friday representing Christ hanging on the cross. And then you have this Saturday that nobody knows what to do with. Because between Friday and Sunday, there was this Saturday, Easter tradition, according to the first Easter, where everyone was fearful and confused because Christ died. And we celebrate that like it's obvious Christ died for our sin and then he rose again and we celebrate all Saturday long. But that's not how it looked. In fact, if you came to our Good Friday service, there was a moment in that service at the very end that lent a, a symbol to this. And it, it, it weighed on me heavy. I was sitting right over here. And we, we, we read scripture all through the gospel account of Christ dying. The wrath of God being poured out on the cross of Christ so that you could be spared. So that the punishment of sin would be on his cross and not on your shoulders. That anyone who would believe in his name would have life because he's taken the death. And it comes with graphic detail that he was turned over and he was betrayed and he was spit on and he was beat. And they put nails in his hands. And for six hours, he hung there, breathing, depths of breath that were so hard to get out. And he cries out, God, why did you forsake me? We know he forsook him so that he could accept us. He was mocked. Why, do, why don't you save yourself? You save others. And we, we, we consider all of that on Good Friday. And then, and then all of a sudden, the Bible closed and the worship band just left the stage. They just left, and we all kind of looked around like, well, keep going. Like, what are you doing? You left. And then the lights came on, and we all shuffled out quietly. And I, and, and I just heavy-hearted. I know the end of the story, and I'm just thinking, 
we got to keep preaching. <laughs> we got to keep sharing. I mean, that's not where the story ends, and yet so often it does end there. You give your life to Christ. You say, take it all. I consider everything worthy to lose so that I can have an excellent knowledge of life in your name, abundant life of joy and rejoicing, and you give it away, and then you wait. And hope means that you believe that you do not wait in vain. Hope, hope means that you believe that when we get the metaphor of a seed, that when you plant a seed, it comes out of the ground. Not overnight, but it will come out of the ground. I love the faith of a child in this instance because a couple years ago, my wife bought my kids one of those botany kits where you get to get a Petri dish and put some dirt, and then it was like some seeds, I think of a, a small little beanstalk. And uh, my oldest two daughters, they, they, they buried the seeds, and then they put dirt over it, and they left it in the sun, and they followed the instructions, and then they stared. And, I, you know, me, little faith, I was like, yeah, this is, the fun's over, kids. <laughs> Just go to bed. And then they would wake up every morning. And they'd run to the Petri dish. And they would look. And then they'd go about their day, and then they'd come back, and then they'd look. And with eager expectation and hope, one morning they ran to the Petri dish, and they were like, it happened! It's alive! It came out of the dirt! It's a beanstalk! It's, it went in, and now it's green! And I remember that moment thinking, that is the life of following Christ, is that you allow God to take these seeds that he gives us of gifts and talents and resources and a temporary life, and we say, Lord, I consider whatever you have to do to bury me worthy of what comes out of the ground. And here's the other thing you put your hope in. What comes out of the ground is better than what goes in. You put a seed in, and if the seed remains alone, if it does not die, it remains alone. It's just a seed. I guess you could eat it, and maybe you get like an, a calorie out of it. But if it goes into the ground and it's buried and it dies, it produces much grain. It doesn't come out the same. And, and Paul will say the same thing of our lives. What was sown in corruption will come out incorruptible. Are, are you, do you ever get tired of these, these up and downs of your soul where you're, you're washed by the preaching of the word and you're inspired by the presence of God and worship and then you go out into the filth of the world and it's like still corruptible? The promise of eternity is when you sow the seed in God's economy, it comes out incorruptible one day, it will be finished in your life. What is sown in weakness will come out stronger. And whatever you give to God will come out better. And I hope that we can appeal to the last year or so to remember that. Because we had to give a lot over to God. In fact, I can't help, and maybe I'm the most blessed by this morning today and looking out and, and knowing that we're worshiping a risen Savior with living hope together because I was alone in my living room last year this time. And for the preachers among us or anyone who, who, who has ever done a Bible study or anything, it is so hard to preach into a Bible study with no people. In fact, I, I always joke that it was some of the best couples therapy I ever got with my wife because it was just me and her as the cameraman. And I was like, cut, you're ruining it. <laughs> I was alone in my heaviness. And so, so we all were. We were all scattered. But what went into the ground comes out more alive. That's why I'm so moved and touched by the scripture reading from the languages that were not random. We had our sister Nagme who who wasn't part of our church at the time that it went into the ground last year, this time. 
And yet, as we started to see those, those little shoots of greenery coming out of the ground of God's economy for our church, we started seeing more people representing more redemptive hope for the world that God loves. And Nagme came in and she said, hey, what if this church started to minister to the underground church in Turkey, in Iran, and that's why we read in Farsi, because we're connected to them as a family. And then I met with Julio and Nagme, and they weren't part of our church when we went under the ground. And now, right after this service, we're going to proclaim the gospel good news, the resurrection life in Spanish, because now they are. And Esmeralda reads to us in Spanish because it's part of the family. And then we hear John chapter 20 from Pastor Abil, who right now, as we listen to the gospel proclaimed in our language, we, we know with confident hope that God is using his preaching in Arabic in the across the street to bring people to himself in that language. It come out of the ground. A better picture of what God has planned and what man intended for evil, God has used for good, and he gives us a broader picture of his hope for this world. And it's true of your life. Because I know that church is not the only thing that we have a real-life example of challenging from the last year. You guys lost stuff. You guys had to go through difficult things, sickness, People died in our fellowship from various things that we navigate and we think, God, give us the hope that this is not the end of the story. And what goes into the ground will always come back in your name, more abundant, more glorious, in ways that we can't even comprehend. And so we live by faith that the design of a seed is just a picture of our life. And we live with hope that the seed does not stay buried because Christ gives us a picture of the firstborn of all creation, not the last born, not the only born, but Christ conquers the grave so that believing in him, we'd have life in his name and that the dead in Christ will rise as well. And when we rise, it will be more glorious than what you can imagine. And then we, we leave off with this final vital sign. It says we have faith and we have hope and we have love. You have those three things, you start to see God. You have those three things alive and you start to allow God to be reflected and you become a mirror dimly lit through faith, hope, and love. And Jesus says, if anyone serves me, let him follow me and where I am, he will be. And my father will honor him. And this is a statement of the love of God for this day. And this is the message of the cross. This is the hope of the empty tomb that God did this to be with you. Anyone who serves me will follow me. I'm a seed. I will go first, and you will follow, and you will come with me. And this is the greatest love that has ever been proclaimed to this world. There's no greater love than for someone to lay down his life so that others could live. And why did Christ lay down his life? So that if you follow me, you will be with me. I want you to know, wherever you came from this morning, first time in church, first time in a long time, church every Sunday, we sing praises today. We rejoice today because God is love. God loves you because he loves you. And he died for you, not because you cleaned your act up and you got to church and you heard the message and you met him halfway. It says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, of which we are all. And in his love, we are made brand new. Let me give you a promise of the scripture. 
It says that now I am persuaded, I'm convinced of this very fact, that death or life, angels, principalities, things present or things to come, no height, no depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Your sin didn't separate you from his love. His penalty for sin to be death did not separate you from his love. He overcame it, and he did it so that you could be with him, so that when you hear this message, you wouldn't think, I wonder if that was for me, or I wonder if I qualify. I wonder how many times I have to hear it before I actually get to receive it. Here's the message that will revolutionize your life and will change our world. You put faith in the design of God that glory comes after you give your life away. And you have hope that what God has done to raise his son from the grave is possible for all of us. The same spirit that was in Christ raising him is now available to anyone who asks. And he was compelled and he was motivated by the love with which he loved you and you cannot change his mind. And maybe the best way to describe all of this is through an example of one little seed. You know, I think what's supposed to happen is as we celebrate Easter and, and the resurrection is that we're supposed to be so in love with God that we truly allow our lives to be representations of the life that he lives in us. And then we all go around as little mirrors reflecting his glory, showing people what happens when something goes into the ground and comes out alive in Christ and all of the stories that all of you have and will have to come of how God has given you a reason to have hope. You gave him your life and he gave you more life. You gave him your sin and he gave you forgiveness. You gave him your shame and he gave you grace. You gave him your weakness and he gave you strength. So may your life be a reflection of the resurrection power. And here's one life that I want to share with you from just a, a brother in our church that will preach the message for us better than I can today. So this is a, a, a story of, of uh, one of my great friends in our church. He serves in our recovery program. And I just wanted to allow a testimony of the seed coming alive to be shared with you. Right after this, Noah's going to come back up and lead us into some songs where we can commit our hearts and our minds to faith, hope, and love. It is the answer of all of the challenges of our world, and it is found. It starts and ends with Jesus Christ. Here's a video. I grew up in a really bad way. There was a lot of violence in my household. My dad was an alcoholic, and it was really dysfunctional. So I grew up with him beating my mom. I grew up with him beating me, my aunts. And when my mom and dad split up in 1986-87, then I was left with my brothers and sisters with my dad. And so I was the brunt of his destruction. But then there came a time when I turned to the streets because I had no other way. And I started running the streets, I started using drugs, I started getting involved in gangs, and that overtook my life. As I got older and started getting in trouble and getting incarcerated, that's when even the court systems were saying that I was a lost cause, there was no hope for me, and that basically I was a menace to society. And I spent the majority of my 20s in the California prison system, and then when I was released at the age of 30, I came to Idaho to stay with my little sister. And at that time, I got my very first apartment. Everything was going okay, but I started drinking. And even though I wasn't using drugs, I justified it, saying that it's just alcohol. Well, I found myself at a party I should have never been at. And what ended up happening was a man showed up that was a rival gang member. And I did the only thing I knew how and assaulted him with a weapon. And then 
the crazy part about it is God was actually working in my life without me knowing it because the next day I called my mom, told her what I did and went and turned myself in. You know, and so then what ended up happening was when I got into the prison system, I got in more trouble. And so I got put into solitary confinement for three years. Why I was in solitary confinement, I actually cried out that I wanted to change, but I didn't know how. I didn't cry out to God, I just said I want to change. And God heard that cry, because when I got let back into general population, 10 days later, another inmate introduced me to the Bible and I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. And that was the decision that changed my life forever. You see, my new life in Christ is a life of peace, in love, in joy. And it's all because of Jesus. Before Christ, I was a really violent man. I was a drug addict, I was a thief, and I had no regards for human life. But since giving my life to Jesus, that he's softened my heart in such a way that I love everybody. For instance, with my dad, before, if he were to say something to push my buttons, I would turn to violence. But now, when he pushes my buttons, I just pray. And now my dad's the one always calling me, saying, can you pray for this? Can you pray for that? So my God's brought my dad a really long way. And we actually have a relationship for the first time ever. There's so many things in my life that wouldn't be possible today without God. I was able to go to school and get my journeyman's license for plumbing. God also opened up a door for me to buy a house. You know, I've never lived in a house before. And God did bless me with a wife. And God allowed my beautiful wife to move in my house with me. He's put ministries and asked me to oversee ministries. That's crazy to ask me to oversee anything. But with Jesus, it's possible. A lot of times I have to ask God, you know, is this real? Because of all the beautiful things that he's doing in my life. And it's only because I surrender to him. And see, it doesn't matter where you've been in life, what you've done in life. If Jesus can set someone like me free, he can set you free too. But it all starts with believing in Jesus and understanding that the same resurrection power that rose him from the dead can raise you from whatever you're going through and set you free and make you a new creation. If there's hope for me, there's hope for anybody.